0: We are in a series right now titled Wake Up, Wake Up, and the whole uh, heartbeat of the series is the Bible throughout talks about Christians falling asleep, and it's a warning not to fall asleep, and really it shows different things will help make you fall asleep. One is the deceitfulness of wealth, it says will choke you out and make you pass out and fall asleep to really the purpose of your life, the passions of your life, really the desires that would satisfy you. you, fall asleep to those things, and you almost sleepwalk through your life, and you lose years. And so there's this warning to a church in Revelation. It just literally says, stop it. Like, wake up and live the purpose for your life. And what's interesting, I did some studies on how churches fall asleep. And if you were here the very first week, a couple more of this. One is churches that fall asleep lose a sense of urgency. They become apathetic. Uh, And then the, the flip side is they get a sense of urgency for the wrong things. They get very passionate about rules instead of actually reaching people. They get very uh, passionate about preferences instead of really the principles of the kingdom of loving God and loving people. And last but not least, one of the things that shows uh, what happens to churches when they fall asleep is that they love the past more than they love the future. When they talk about the past times, they reminisce, oh, it was the best in the past. And so therefore, they miss out on dreaming for the future. And my prayer in this uh, series is simply this, is that we would love the past, we would uh, enjoy the past, but man, we would embrace today and dream for the future that we would wake up and understand that the best days are ahead of us as a church. And I'm just talking mission church, talking about the church in general, that there is, I believe, a Bay Area revival coming to this area. I believe it. I believe we're going to be a part of it. I believe God's going to breathe on the churches. I don't think it's going to be just one church. I believe it's going to be churches plural. There's too many people. Uh, last time I checked, 10 million people, people in the Bay Area. This seat's about 275. We're a little dipped, I would say. I did the math. It'd be like 28 services a day, seven days a week. Anyways, okay. Um, so here, yeah, wow. Uh, here's what we're gonna do today: is we're gonna talk about two things, and title my message is "Wake Up," and it's "Wake Up to the Lord." And well, it'll make sense in a second. But you came to a special Sunday. You're getting a two for one. I'm giving two messages today because I want to teach on communion real quick. So for the next four minutes, I really want you to understand the heart of communion. We're gonna uh, receive communion together before I go to my message. But I don't want it to be some cavalier thing where you grab the cup and grab the bread, and you chew the bread and drink the cup and be like, ah, I feel a lot better now. Thank you, Jesus. But I want you to understand the cost of what even communion represents. And for looking at history, you can look at history in different parts, and different ways to break down history. One way we look at history in America is just wars, the Revolutionary War, then the Civil War, World War I, World War II, and that signifies different eras in our uh, nation's history. Well, in the Bible, I want to use a bent of looking at food to break up history. How's that sound? Any foodies in the house? Yeah. Ten foodies. Let's go out to eat together. You know what I'm talking about? Let's talk about our favorite restaurants. And here's why. Because the Bible shows that Jesus is Lord of the Feast. In Genesis, there's this moment. It's the first meal that I'm going to talk about. There's five meals that really signify the history of the Bible, if you want to look at it this way. And theologians will break it down this way at times. The first one is in the garden where they enjoy the apple. They get sold on a bill of goods to eat this kind of meal and they uh, bite in the apple, the female does, and then the guy just stands there apathetic. Oh, what are you doing? Uh, oh, and she eats it and he's like, oh, okay, I'll do it too. Um, there's a sermon in that, but we'll do that some other time. And they built it for everybody. Where we were built to live, we get kicked out of it and then Jesus is, of course, coming to restore it and he died on a cross and we're gonna have a new heaven, new earth. So the first meal is the Garden of Eden. Second meal is found when the Israelites leave uh, Egypt. So God comes to Pharaoh and says, Yo, let my people go. He uses Moses to communicate these things and says, You don't let my people go. WWE, I call it the WWF because that's really what it was. The WWE smackdown will come on Egypt, basically, okay? My paraphrase, okay? Like, that's in the Bible? No, it's a paraphrase. Seven plagues. Don't mess with my people. You stop messing with them, or I'm gonna mess with you. Don't start nothing, there won't be nothing. Kind of that kind of thing, okay? Well, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened over and over again, and he does not release them in the way that they should. And so on the last one, he goes, you can go. But then he comes and chases them. And of course, they go through the Red Sea and then the Red Sea closes and God defeats the enemy. But after that, there's two things that happen. happened. One is, before that happens, the last plague, it's, it's the most powerful one but also the most upsetting one. It's where God says, okay, here's the deal. Go have a meal, take a lamb, put it on the doorpost. It's called the Passover. And uh, the theological term is propitiation basically you take the lamb put it on your house and the wrath of god will pass over your house because the blood of the lamb the blood of jesus is over our house so the wrath of god does not touch us the grace of god touches us how good is that come on now and so they have the passover and after they go through there they the god instructs them hey every year I have the passover remember what i did for you i'm the one who rescued you i'm the one who brought you to freedom so there's your second meal third meal is the last supper Jesus, he's on the scene now, he's lived his ministry, he's with his disciples, and he simply says, hey, I'm about to go die for you. About to go pay a price you can't pay. And he breaks down the cup and the bread, and he says, when you guys come together, I want you to remember what the bread and the cup represent. It's a powerful moment with his disciples. He's telling them, I'm going to go experience a pain that you can't experience, pay a price you can't uh, pay, and every time that you eat now, I want you to remember what this signifies. The fourth meal is communion. The church introduces this thing called the communion to remember the Last Supper. And the fifth meal, if you were here a couple weeks ago, I preached on, uh, it's time to celebrate. And that's the banquet. That's the last, the fifth meal. You go through Genesis to Revelation, five great meals in there, okay? But communion. We're on the fourth meal in the timeline of the Bible. And communion, what it represents before we receive the communion. I want you to hear this real quick. Paul breaks it down in Corinthians because the, uh, the Church of Corinth was abusing uh, <laughs> communion on a whole different level. They were using it to get drunk. They were using it to uh, wine and dine the elites. They were using it to be licentious and legalistic. They would even have a menage a trois. I'm going to say it that way. I, I, there's, there's no really good way to say it. They would have people come over and they would have hookups and have communion. That's what has happened at the Church of Corinth. That is some messed up stuff, okay? So Paul comes in and goes, you are, I, you are doing more harm than good as a church knock it off. And how he fixes them doing more than harm and good is he readdresses communion again. It's interesting what calibrates the church. And Paul shows that communion will help calibrate your soul and calibrate the church. It'll get you back on the path, get you refocused again because here's what it shows. Shows you an opportunity. Shows you what Jesus did so it reminds you, man, my my God loves me. Paid a price that I couldn't have paid. He was broken so I could be restored. He came to earth as a man. He left the throne, hearing holy, holy to come to earth, to hear crucify, crucify so Paul says man, remember what it, what it signifies but then he talks about, remember what it, the promise of what comes with it and the promise with communion in this little cup I don't know how old this grape juice is, but you should be fine um, and the wafer, you should be good also anyways the bread represents the opportunity of restoration says that this will be my body broken for you so you could be restored. The Bible shows throughout Isaiah that by his wounds, we will be healed. And I think a lot of Christians just don't walk through the opportunity. We, we, We start to become ones that struggle instead of just surrender and receive the blessing. So when you receive the bread today, understand the opportunity you have today. You have the opportunity to walk into wholeness, healing, restoration. Man, walk into it. Bask in it, receive it. Galatians says we're an heir to heaven. Start being heir to heaven instead of being some son of this world chasing after the scraps of this world. And then the juice, I was thinking about doing wine today and then having you come in and be like, is this happy hour? You're welcome. Um, But we suck with juice because it's going to spill everywhere. But they had wine in in, uh, the um, New Testament, but this juice represents Christ's blood. And the blood represents so many things. It represents the opportunity to feel clean. I'm going to preach on that a little bit today. I feel like a lot of people in the church, they don't know how to feel clean again. Guilty conscience, shame. We do, we do different ways in how we deal with our shame and our just feeling unclean. Maybe sometimes we try harder. We stay away from things that make us feel uh, unclean. But man, right here, this is your answer. Jesus. He's the only one that can make you whiter than snow. He's the only one that can literally renew something broken and bring something from death to life, from cursing to blessing. This represents blessing. So I'm going to pray and then I'd love for you to receive the bread and the cup. And the instructions are very simple from Paul but one is you should ask for forgiveness. All of us got something we need to ask forgiveness for. All of us got something to work on. And then after you ask for forgiveness you should repent in the sense of you should decide to do something different in your life that would honor the Lord. You should turn away from the world and turn towards a heavenly rhythm and just say, Lord, as I receive this Man, I declare today that I'm going to love people better today. I'm going to love better this week. It's amazing when you just receive communion, you eat the bread and drink the cup, You just kind of just goes by. But man, if we start receiving communion with the posture and the importance that the Bible shows us, man, it will get us ready for the greatest banquet of all time. Does that sound good? I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for what communion represents. We thank you for, you're the Lord of the feast. Uh, Lord, I love that you're the one that shows us that where we eat And who we eat with will affect our life. What we eat will affect our life. And you show that the bread of heaven, that you are the bread of heaven, that you are the one that satisfies our soul, that we can eat and eat from this world and will be just as empty, but man, once we just eat a breadcrumb from heaven, it can change our life. So Lord, may we remember today, but may we also dream today for the future. Oh, we love you. Everybody said. She's so going to play for about another 30 seconds to a minute. Feel free to pray. If you're with a friend, feel free to pray with them. And then receive the bread and receive the cup. And then I'm about to throw down and preach. Here we go. I'm going to finish with this, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll go to the message. Timothy Keller says it best. There's this interesting verse before I uh, quote Timothy Keller. There's an interesting verse in the Old Testament. It's in Zechariah, I believe, chapter 3. And he's having a vision of Joshua. Joshua's one of the greatest men in the Old Testament, he was a prophet, he was a high priest, he was amazing, he's the one who led the people in the promised land. And Zachariah has a vision of Joshua, and it says that he's in front of the Lord, and he has this dirty robe, and the Hebrew word actually says that the robe is so dirty that it's urine and excrements on his robe. And it's a fascinating study, theologians have studied this chapter for so long, because it's one of those ones where the Lord is trying to show us, you see this throughout the Old Testament that the greatest men and women in the Bible that lived to the highest standard that they could still fell drastically short of the standard of the greatness of God and the purity of God. That Joshua, a high priest, still, after everything that he had accomplished, everything he did, he still had this dirty robe on him because he could not earn salvation. He could not earn the white robe because he just wasn't strong enough or good enough. That's why we needed Jesus. Isaiah, when he encounters God, the first thing he realizes, and this Isaiah, the great prophet, he realizes that he is a man of unclean lips, a man who speaks so well, who used his mouth only to praise God, he still understood, man, I'm still drastically short of the glory and greatness of God. And Timothy Keller says this, very simple, you are more, way more sinful than you ever dare imagined. Some of you don't like hearing that. I want you to hear this real quick. My messages, all the time, this is what I pray, Lord, may my messages kill sin. May it kill sin, but may it help the sinner. May it it help the sinner. May the sinner leave here more free, but may may people who are holding sin in their life, that they would like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I had to get it out of my life. And some of us don't want to realize that we have sin in our life. And we, we are way more bent towards evil than we thought we were, but this is what I love how he finishes it. But you are way more loved and accepted than you ever dare hoped at the same time. It's just, Come with your junk, give it to the Lord, let him give you a new robe, and just enjoy the blessing it is to live in the house of God. Does that sound good? Lord, thank you. As we go into the message, message number two, two for one today, uh, Lord, I pray that you bless it, I pray that you bless the people. Uh, Lord, I pray that, again, your word, it shows that it does not return void. So right now, I pray that for our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Oh, Lord, we love you, we love you. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, who's married in the house? Raise your hand. All right, if you're not married, I'm gonna give you some pre-married counseling, all right? Let's do this, all right? So when I first got married, Rachel and I are both very strong personalities, right? I uh, am just, I'm, I'm a strong personality. I'm not the most strong personality, but I'm not like a pushover. And then Rachel's Italian, enough said, okay? Um, she'll get in her Italian mode like, hey, I told you to clean up the room. I'll be like, what are you, the godfather right now? I'll come back in an hour, I'll see how it is. And they're like, what the world? I mean, she do not mess with Rachel, okay? Um, she bows up. We, we, she, we, we use this thing called the blowfish. If she gets angry, it's like, Aah! I'm like, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm just kidding. I, I don't get scared. I'm like, what? What now? No, not at all. Okay, anyways, so Rachel and I get married, and when you first get married, you try to figure out how this is going to work. How are we going to fit? How are we going to roll together? What are the rhythms of our marriage going to look like? And let me just ask you this question. Have you ever seen anything work really well? Just something you're like, wow, that thing works so well. You can use a sports illustration. The, the Golden State Warriors offense is the best offense because they work so well together. They have, the ball moves well. Nobody thinks it's all about them. They know their positions. They know their roles. You look at different things that have been created. When the iPhone came out, it was fantastic. iPhone 2 had this thing called the dead spot. They had to create a bumper. It didn't work too well. People didn't want it. Well, in marriage, I believe it takes time for it to work well. And there has to be things that you have to understand. They're biblical principles. When Rachel and I first got married, we were negotiators, all right? You just would negotiate everything. So when we first got married. We moved to our apartment. I wanted to put this poster above our bed. Go put it on the screen right here. Come on now. Come on. Come on. It's six feet long. I said, yo, MJ's the man. We're going to put him right above the bed. And it's the wings. It's one of the greatest posters of all time. And Rachel looked at me and said, no. And I was like, "Well, hold on. I'll let you put your uh, paintings on the wall in the living room if you put this up. She's like, No just so you know, it's never been up in our house yet, that pray for me one day, okay? So we negotiated, and I failed in that negotiation, okay? Then we uh, uh, keep going on, and we're talking about having kids now. You can take that poster down. That's gonna be distracting. (laughs) Shout out, MJ. I pray for you every day, bro. Um, He's gonna get saved. MJ's gonna get saved. Okay, anyways, uh, then we start doing vacations, and then we start talking about kids and It's interesting when you get married to somebody, you've had names picked out before you met the person sometimes. And so for me, I said, "Hey babe, you know, I want to name our son Michael Jordan Johnson." Okay? (laughs) Um, And and it'll be short for MJ, you know. And um, when he makes a three, MJ for three, you know. Or if he's in a play, MJ did a great job today. Either one, I'm fine with. Okay? Um, Rachel loves plays. I love sports, and it works. Okay? So she goes, "Okay, I'll let you name our son MJ if we can name our daughter Hero." Okay? And uh, uh, again, Rachel, where does Hero come from? She is a Shakespeare fan. It is a, uh, I guess, a girl in a play who's an amazing character in one of the Shakespeare plays. She went at UCLA, studied abroad, loved Shakespeare. And I was like, you know what? Our kid doesn't need to be named Michael Jordan. Never mind. <laughs> you know all good, because I'm not naming my daughter Hero. Boom, vetoed, Throw them both out. Back to square one, all right? So we negotiated, And finally, we landed on, I don't don't mind sharing it, I'm excited to name my son J.J. If the Lord willing, we have a son, I want to name him J.J., okay? J.J. Johnson for three, okay? Um, Also, J.J. Johnson loves the Lord, he's a good kid, but he's going to make threes. Anyways, okay. Um, So negotiation for the first year happened all the time, and if I'm being honest, it wasn't good, it was terrible, it was always a fight. And then even when you won the negotiation, like on vacation, well, I want to go golfing. Well, I want to go drive to the top of the volcano. Well, I want to do this. And you try to do this 50-50 negotiation. And don't get me wrong, we had a great first year, but it just was something that always came back and always kind of ruined a trip or something here and there. And after the first year, we realized we are not called to be negotiators as spouses. We're called to be servants. And so Rachel really understood that now I am the leader, and whatever I want to do, we do, and it's fantastic. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You guys laugh way too hard at that. <laughs> Lord says, on the boss. No, not at all. So we became servants. And we found ways, to, uh, and if I'm being honest, it was weird. It was just uh, this Holy Spirit calibration. It was the Bible that really showed me, like, man, like, when my wife is having the best vacation, I'm having the best vacation. When my wife's having the best week, I'm having the best week. And she's realized when I'm having the best week, she's having the best week. And now we're not trying to get from each other. We're actually trying to bless each other. And we got this kind of, if I can be honest, we're kind of in this blessing competition. And it's one of the sweetest things to be in. And our marriage works really well because of it. And I want to hear this real quick. A lot of you in this room, when you get saved and say yes to Jesus, I think a lot of us come as negotiators. You negotiate with God. God, okay, I'll do this if you do this. I'll do this if, I, if you do this. And the problem with that is that you don't have anything to negotiate with Jesus No leverage, nothing. You negotiate death and all he wants to give you is life. You want to bring these things into your life and Jesus is like, no, I'm not. You are a follower, not a negotiator. I am Lord. They do studies in churches. I want you to hear this real quick. There's three different types of Christians in the church and what I mean by that is there's three different seasons. The first one is when somebody gets saved, you understand grace. You realize that Jesus is your savior. And so a lot of people start there. Jesus is my savior. The second part in your growth as a follower of Christ is the word of God that is alive and active, that Jesus became the word of God, that, that, that became flesh. The word of God becomes the authority in your life. No longer are you thinking of whatever is best. You are not an editor of the word. You are coming under the authority of the word of God. And then the last part of growing, it shows this, and you see this throughout your study, theologians show it, is that Jesus becomes Lord of your life. And again, the best way to you can put a picture is he becomes your father and you become an obedient son and daughter. Because you know daddy knows best. But the problem is, we got a lot of sons and daughters trying to negotiate with their father. A lot of sons and daughters trying to do their own thing, thinking dad doesn't know best. And so I have a couple points I want to share with you. And what I want to have happen today is that I would love for Jesus to become lord of your life. Wake up and let Jesus be lord. Not just savior, but let him lead you. Let him redeem you. Let him take the things that you're not supposed to carry. So many Christians are trying to do things that only the Lord can take care of. And I'm going to show you a handful of stories. The first one is simply this. The title of it is, Jesus is the Lord of the Storm. Let Jesus be the Lord of your storms. Stop trying to navigate the storm and ask God to do a little bit in the storm. Just give him the storm and let, let him do what he can do in the storm. Let's look what happens here. It's uh, found in uh, Matthew 14, and 23. Turn your Bibles, you have them. 14, 22 through 23. It's one of the more famous stories ever in the Bible. It's where Peter walks on water. But again, I want to take a bent that maybe you haven't heard before and inspire you maybe to start surrendering uh, more than uh, worrying. Here we go. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. Uh, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, to set this context of the scripture up, right before this, Jesus had just uh, finished feeding five thousand, and twelve loaves of bread and fish were left over. So the disciples take the twelve leftover fish and bread, put it in the boat. They just had witnessed one of the greatest miracles of all time. Not only one of the greatest miracles, but in the four gospels, the only miracle that's in all four gospels is the feeding of five thousand. So it's a phenomenal miracle. It's an amazing miracle. They take the loaves, put it in the boat. They know that their God can do things not of this world. They don't have them with them, but they have the leftovers of the miracle, if I could put it that way, the abundance of the miracle. Let's use that term. And so they're in the boat, and there becomes a storm, and here's what happens. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on water. Everybody say, walking on water. Walking on water. Come on. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say the disciples were afraid of the storm. They actually were afraid of Jesus walking on water. I believe this. I believe the supernatural of the Bible scares a lot of Christians. I believe the, the, the spirit being able to conquer things that you can't conquer. It scares you because you can't control it. You can't understand it. You need to understand something. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not going to understand everything that Jesus does. Some of it is just going to be scary. Some of it's going to be too big for you to comprehend. You are finite. Jesus is infinite. Do not let your finite brain hold you back from enjoying infinite blessing and infinite victories. Okay? So here we go. So he goes on. He goes, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter uh, got down of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately. I love that Jesus said, immediately. I don't know about you, but when, when you yell to the Lord, save me, do you sometimes feel like the Lord's like this? Such a loser. Always blown it. Sometimes I feel like the Lord is just tapping his thing and looking at me. That's not the posture of our God. When we cry out, he runs to us. Immediately, he saves Peter. Now, stop. Let's look at this story. So there's a storm. Other translations show that, of course, they're afraid of the storm, they're afraid of when they see Jesus, but there is fear, they start to worry, and all they have is worry at that moment. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to wake them up to a new way of processing, a new way of understanding that no longer are you just sons of this world, but you are now sons of the living God, and you should process differently. And so what that looks like is simply this, what they were warring against, Jesus was walking on top of. Test that real quick. There's a storm, and Jesus walks on top of the storm. And what he's showing his disciples is what I'm doing, you can do too if you follow me. Let's look at this verse real quick. It's going to break it down even more. Ready? Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Stop. It's a very uh, short verse. It's one of those ones you could read by. And uh, if you look at the Greek, it starts to come to life. And what the Greek words show is, the word crush is actually uh, used uh, as a uh, military Roman term where they would have their shoes and they would walk and crush like this. And here's why they would do it. I want to catch this. It's one of my favorite verses I've ever stumbled upon. So when you're reading this as a believer in Christ, and it's telling you, hey, that the enemy will be crushed under your feet, what the Lord is showing you and I, the way we should wake up to and the way we should process our life, is simply this is that when you start walking, you need to understand that the enemy's under your feet. He's not in front of you, he's not to your right, he's not to your left. And here's why he's under your feet. Because the authority of all of heaven has now uh, been given to you to conquer anything that you have in your life. Yeah. Now, let me show you a picture. The Roman soldiers would wear these shoes with uh, spikes and uh, uh, like you'd say baseball cleats almost on the bottom, but they were metal. And if you were in town and you heard the soldiers marching your way, you just heard them, and they would, they would march and you'd hear them you would get out of the way of them because if you didn't get out of the way of them, here's what would happen. You would be a bloody mess because they move for nobody. They would trample you and kill you. And what the Bible's showing us, what Jesus is showing us, is that when you walk out of here and you said yes to Jesus, that you should not walk with fear, but you should walk with a new mindset that I have a Lord that conquers everything. He goes before me. So when you walk, you walk, hey, if the enemy's in front of me, oh man, in about 10 seconds, he's going to be below me. And after he's going to be below me, he's going to be defeated behind me. A lot of Christians don't walk life that way. A lot of Christians go into their week worrying. I wrote this quote down. I want you to hear this. It's a very uh, simple quote, but I believe it's a powerful one. Worry doesn't empty the sorrows of tomorrow. It only empties today of its strength. I want to say it again. Worry doesn't empty the sorrows of tomorrow. It only empties today of its strength. Man, I want to wake up and dream about victory, not worry about defeat. I want to say it again. I want to wake up and dream about victory and not worry about defeat. And here's how I know that I have victory. Because I have a Lord that is the Lord of the storm and he's the Lord of victory. But man, if you just have a Savior that you think, oh, I hope I do anything wrong and I know he saved me from, uh, from hell but I don't know about anything else in my life. I know I'm saved from hell but what about everything else till I get to heaven? What does that look like? And what it looks like is, man, you can be somebody who walks different in this world and shows people victory. And I, I want to pray different. I want to love different. I want to steward. The season's different. Man, stop worrying and stop worrying. Stop worrying. Start worrying. Another one to say: Stop worrying. Start worshiping. All right, they sound good. All right, let's go. Ahead. Let's keep going. Uh, next one: Jesus is the Lord of the mess. Lord of the mess. This is going to be a fun one. In Mark seven, there's these three stories back to back: the five thousand walking on water, and then this moment where they're eating, and the Pharisees come on the scene. It's I'm going to read some of it. It's a pretty long scripture, but if you want to go home and read it, it's a phenomenal study. But Mark 7 says this, one day some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of the many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers, of the religious law, asked them, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he proph- prophesied about you, uh, for he wrote, those people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is farce, for they teach man-made ideas and commands from God. Stop. God goes and say, for you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Very simple thing, but basically saying, hey, you're really close to rules, very far away from me. You can't follow rules and follow me. Follow me, and you get everything. You follow rules, you don't get me. And some people in the house, let's, let's talk about shame. It's a good topic in church. but Let's talk about it, okay? Let's talk about when you sin, and you don't want anybody to know about your sin. Let's talk about family stuff. When you, something happens to your family, you don't want anybody to hear about your family things. I believe from the beginning of time, after Adam and Eve sinned, we've always been trying to find a way to feel clean and become clean you got to think about it. Jesus didn't engage every conversation. So in Mark 7, they're talking about washing hands and talking about cleanliness, and Jesus not only engages with them, but he debates with them. It's one of the few times where he comes hard to the paint because here's the deal. He wants to address a weakness in man and show them the only way they become clean is Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. Let's do a couple of ideas. How do you uh, become clean for yourself? What's your mechanism? Some people's mechanism when they become clean is simply this. The only way that I know I can at least feel clean is if I stay away anything of Christianity. If I stay away from the Word of God, if I don't go to church, because when I go to church for some reason, I, I don't feel clean anymore. That's the enemy, perverting the gospel and perverting church to make you feel disqualified instead of qualified. A lot of people, when they mess up, they stay away from church for a season because they feel like, oh man, if they found out. No, that's the opposite of what church is. The church is the place where the unclean come and become redeemed and whiter than the snow. Second one is this. When you mess up, are you one of the people that just tries really, really hard? like, okay, I messed up, so for the next two weeks, I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray more in the morning, and then after two weeks, I'll kind of forget about my sin, and I'm all better, Lord. Does that sound good? Thumbs up? Sweet. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to wash yourself. You're trying to wash yourself through traditions, you're trying to wash yourself through your own man-made ideas, and Jesus addresses and says, man, I I am the Lord of the mess. I am the Lord of the messy things. And Best illustration I can share, it's it's very simple, but... uh, Who got the very first iPhone 1? Raise your hand. First iPhone, the very first iPhone. Who's my first iPhone adopter? A few of you. Okay, that's weird. I thought a lot of you would be. What were you doing? The BlackBerry? Seriously? (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you remember BlackBerry? It's kind of sad. It's like gone. It's like a paperweight now. But anyways, um, I was a youth pastor making not a lot of money. It was a bad stewarding decision on my part, but I bought an iPhone 1. Okay? I was like, I'm going to save up all my money, and I'm going to buy an iPhone. It looked like the coolest thing on the planet. So I bought the iPhone, and... It's interesting when you have something brand new unscratched, okay? You try to find the best case for it. You, you set it away from your food. Um, you, you don't want to drop it. It's, it's, like, it's like this like, little gentle bird almost, if you will. Does anybody treat their phones like that? I'm a weirdo, okay. Um, but let's be real. Another illustration, how about a car? If you get a brand new car, you park it away from cars. You know what I'm talking about. I'll just be honest. If I like got a Tesla yesterday tomorrow or today, I love my Jeep. I don't I, I want my Jeep. Um, but if I had a Tesla or like a Ferrari or anything I really like or, uh, cars that are super, super nice that I'd be like, oh my gosh, I would park that thing away from everybody. Nobody's dinging my baby, okay? Um, it's just the way we process. Something happened along the way with my iPhone. Six months in, I dropped it a few times, it was beat up. I didn't care anymore about my iPhone. It was so dirty. It was it was a mess, basically. Like I remember when I cracked the screen, I was like, this thing's a piece of junk. And it went from being this thing that I guarded and protected to this thing that I didn't care about guarding anymore. And I want you to hear this real quick. When Jesus saves you, you get redeemed. You are whiter than snow. And what I think the enemy tries to do to you is he tries to make you feel like you've been dropped too many times. That there's too many cracks in the screen. And why in the world would I care about living a life of purity? Why would in the world would I live a life of holiness? Why in the world would I live a life of faithfulness when my life already has been broken and cracked? And Jesus says, That's the problem. You think that you need only this. I can restore it and give you a brand new thing. And here's what's so interesting. When you realize that you have a um, propensity to just go, It's over, instead of saying, man, Lord, you're the Lord of the mess because you clean up the mess. I want to honor when things are clean. This is a brand new white shirt, by the way. Um, I spill like crazy when I eat. But when I get a brand new shirt, I eat a little different that day. You know what I'm saying? I I eat a little more uh, cautious. I'm more aware of my surroundings. Man, your calling is that white robe. And it's not dirty. Don't live like it's dirty. Don't live like it's a mess. Man, honor it. Walk differently. Live a different life because of it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And I'm going to finish with this point simply is Jesus is the Lord of provision. He's the Lord of provision. So, the first, the, the big three, he's the Lord of the mess, he's the Lord of the storm, and he's the Lord of provision. And the Lord of provision is in John 6. And to save time, I'm just going to paraphrase it. You can read when you get back. But basically, they have 5,000 people. And this is for anybody in the house that you feel like you just aren't enough, you don't have enough to give. Uh, maybe you're a father, and you're like, man, I just don't have enough time to be a great dad, to be a great husband, to be a great follower of Christ. I just feel inadequate all the time. I want to be the best. I want to do the best. I just don't feel like I have enough to give to be everything I'm supposed to be. shows in John 6, is very simple, but they're in a moment where they don't have enough, and Jesus is testing Philip, and he simply asks him, hey, let's feed the people, Philip, what should we do? Why is the all-knowing God asking Philip, what should we do? He's trying to train him to think differently. That you're now with the Lord, the Lord of provision. But here's Philip's answer. He simply says in John 6, he goes, man, it would take eight months of salaries to just get these people a bite of food. I don't know how we're going to do it. And Jesus looks at him, and this is the question. He goes, what do you got? And I believe that's a question that everybody in this room to hear this. What do you have? They find a boy that has just a few fish and a few loaves. And they say, "We we got a few fish and a few loaves. I like to think that the boy gave it to him. It wasn't like Peter was like, give me that kid. You know, he's like, hey, kid, you know, mister, you know. Um, I like to think the kid gave it to him. He did, okay, there you go. Better story that way. So they take what they've got, and they give it to Jesus. It's one of the greatest miracles. He multiplies it. And what I love is everybody eats as much as they want, and it's not as much as they need. In the church, there's this poverty mentality that, like, almost you're not supposed to enjoy the gifts from God it's not the Bible now if the gifts become bigger than the giver then there's a problem but Jesus multiplies what they have and it's this amazing miracle and I, I wrote a couple observations for you real quick for the Lord to be Jesus the Lord of your provision first one is this God cannot bless what you do not give him there are parts in your life right now that you want God to multiply you want him to bless but you have not given him to him so how can he bless it how many prayers have you ever prayed to your father Lord, I I give you this part of my life as a dad. I I need to be a better dad, and I give it to you. Help me be a better dad. How many of you said this prayer about being a husband? Laura, as a husband, I give give it to you. Multiply, help, help me be everything I'm supposed to be as a husband. As a follower of Christ, how many of you said as a follower, head to toe, everything I am, I give it to you. Multiply, do more with it. You can do way more with my life than I can. There's something to be said about when you have a Lord and you come to Him and you give Him everything you got. Your finances, your worries, your friendships, your job, everything, give it to God. Think about it. You have Philip, and it's it's an amazing thing. Philip is thinking like a grown man would. It's a very reasonable answer. Well, here's what we're going to do. Work for eight months, and we're going to feed these people. They might have already starved, but we're going to try. And Jesus is simply saying, Stop it. Start acting like a son. What would a son do? If there's no food in the house, what would a little kid do? What would a kid do if there's no food in the house? A little kid would be like, Oh, I'm going to go get a job at Microsoft, Apple, dad will be back, and I'll take care of the. Di-. No, a kid simply says, Dad, what do we have for dinner? Dad, what are you going to go get me for dinner? I'm hungry. And Jesus is trying to teach Philip, Stop processing like a grown man and start processing like a son of the living God. We have to process more like a son and a daughter not like a grown adult thinking that we have everything in control. You, you, you cannot accomplish the assignment for your life with your own strength and charisma. Start surrendering and stop strategizing. Very simple message today about Jesus being your Lord. But man, I pray that something, this was my prayer as I was preparing for the Sunday. Lord, if we've just been a little off, will you recalibrate who we are? Will you get us back on track? If we stray a little bit, will you wake us up to really the purpose for our life?